Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Nothing is Real, a Beatles podcast, is powered by Acast. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. This is the second half of our discussion about what the Beatles got up to in 1974. And it's all starting to to come together. We've made it halfway through the year. And it's uh, June 1974. Paul is number one in the US with Band on the Run, the third single from the album Band on the Run, which also goes back up to number one in the USA. And... John goes back into the studio to start working on what becomes walls and bridges. And this is a different kind of session to what he's been doing out in L.A. He's now back in New York and there's a bit more order on things, isn't there? Yes. I mean, this is this is he's he's taking stock uh, and uh, this is a very professionally run uh, setup. He's demoing. Uh, he's in a studio demoing uh, the material and some of these demos uh, turned up in 1986 on the album Men Love Avenue. It's a kind of odd album. I don't know if you've got that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of disappeared off the radar. Milk and Honey, the first posthumous album, is now part of the canon. But Men Love yeah. Avenue is this other thing and it's gone, really. It, it, it is. I mean, there was that album and there was Live in New York City and they, they've sort of dropped off the radar. But yeah. one, one side of Men Love Avenue were the demos. And I have to say, I, I, I really enjoy that side of Men Love Avenue. The other side is a sort of mishmash of um, some of the Spectre uh, sessions and a couple of tracks turn up on the Lennon anthology um, box from '98 box, box yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, he seems to have gone in sort of 180 degrees away from the sort of drug and alcohol fuel sessions on on, on the West Coast. Um, he's got a very tight band. Uh, he's got uh, Jimmy Iovine. Yes, is 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 working there, and he gives a quote. Uh, saying these are the most professional sessions I'd ever worked on. Uh, we were there every day, 12 o'clock, 10 o'clock, go home, um, eight weeks, weekends off. He, John knew what he wanted, knew how to get it, and uh, he just told us what to do. Yeah, um, it's interesting so- to hear Jimmy Iovine talk about these sessions now because this was very early in his career and he went on to yeah. huge success producing Tom Petty, Stevie Nicks. He's now uh, head of music at Apple. He's a billionaire because of his co-share in Beats uh, yeah. Electronics. Yeah. Uh, so he's a, he's a fascinating guy and um, there's a documentary about him on Netflix. Uh, but he, he talks about when he kind of got pulled into the record plant orbit of working with John Lennon, how it was initially this big secret. And then once he realized it was John Lennon, he brought his A game. He was like, I think, only second engineer on the sessions, but yep, it, it yep. was his stepping stone to to getting to where he needed to go, you know? 
Well, probably no one, no one bigger than John Lennon in in 1974, uh, unless it was Elton John. Well, see Elton what I, John, see, see, what, uh, see what I did there? I do see what you did there, and it's interesting because 74. My God, the records Elton John was breaking in 1974 was, was quite amazing. He starts the year. Um, with uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, the double album in the top 10 in the US. He ends the year with um, his first greatest hits album at number one in the US. I think the uh, the, the the figure or the stat is something like 4% of all records sold in yeah. 1974 were Elton John records. Now, whether that's yeah. just for the US or whether that's worldwide, either way, he sold it's- a lot of records and he is hot to trot in 1974. He is. And I mean, I, I, I've sort of said, you know, there's uh, uh, the only person bigger than John Lennon was Elton John. But actually, at this point, John Lennon's stock, critically and commercially, is pretty low. Yeah, well, he's um, like Mind Games was the previous album. We, we, we yeah. The title track was kind of a low key hit, um, yeah. but he's certainly not Elton John white hot. No, and I mean, I, I think there there is a definite sense here that it's Elton John doing John Lennon a favor. In a way, uh, yes. You, you know, Elton was obviously very keen. Uh, you know, John Lennon was a bit of a hero figure. Uh, he admired him, but there is no doubt that Elton John was the hottest property around in 1974. And I mean, this is something that would be replicated with David Bowie uh, the following year. Again, Lennon and Bowie who is doing whom the favor. Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, the Walls and Bridges comes together, as you say, it's done in a very professional way over about eight weeks, you know, five days a week. And one of these days, you know, it seems to be almost accidental that Elton gets involved. Yeah. Uh, Lennon said at the time, uh, it was Tony King of Apple brought Elton into the studio. They just walked in um, and Elton said, you know, hey, can I play piano on that? And great. He, and he said, uh, I was amazed at his ability. I knew him, but I'd never seen him play. Fine musician, great piano player, very pleasantly surprised. I, I, we had a great time. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, Lennon does have that kind of tricksy sense of time uh, and rhythm. And he obviously hears what he hears in his head. And Lennon actually, uh, Elton John actually does a very fine job of singing with him. And on the track, Surprise, Surprise, Sweet Bird of Paradox, uh, where again, his vocals, you can hear backing vocals really there. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because, you know, whatever gets you through the night becomes part of the John Lennon legend in 1974. So Elton, this hugely successful figure in 1974, sprinkles his fairy dust on this track and makes this prophetic bet with uh, John and says, if this gets to number one, will you come live, you know, and play with me in Madison Square Garden? And John says... Yeah, of course. yeah. Never, <laughs> never thinking. Never it's never going to happen because John yeah. is probably at this point thinking, "I don't get number one singles. I'm not you. I'm me." And I'm, that's I'm, it. Not, I'm not Ringo. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is true that at this point in the game, John is the only uh, Beatle who has not had a US number one. Yeah, you know, yeah. So he's, he, um, he's and he's probably yeah. taken that to be some kind of normal setting at this point. Yeah, so he I mean yeah, he must have been pretty certain this was never going to uh to to come to pass. Um but you know, it gets the number 1 for for one one week I think. And that's all it took. What's what's your general what do you think about Walls and Bridges generally? Walls and Bridges uh, there are a lot of people really do like this album. Yeah. I I I'm I have to say I'm not one of them. I, yeah. I realize we probably lost half our audience uh <laughs> by saying that uh, one I I think my problem this is this is sort of indicative of the fact that the Beatles at this stage were 
much bigger in America. I mean, particularly uh, John, George, Ringo, they, they, they were very much focusing on America and America was still in love with them. This is a very American sounding record. Yes. Um, it's also a very mid 70s record in the sense of just get more saxophones yes on there um it sounds very dense and you listen to you know probably whatever gets you through the night is the most well-known song mm. and it is you know i don't mean to mean it does sound odd that john was so clean because it does sound very studio cocaine-y kitchen yes. sinky yes. dense yeah. thick you know it's a bit hard to listen to in a way it is. I mean, it, it, there's a remastered version of it that, that came out a few years ago that I think does it a lot of favors, uh, that, yeah. that, that, that sort of opens up the mix a little bit. But again, you think, well, he's he's been working up to this point with Phil Spector across a number of albums. Um, it's a sort of, I don't know, maybe a sort of update on that very densely packed. Yes. Uh, I, I just, and, and the string arrangements, it's... It's a very slick album, and, and I think that's – and there's not much delicacy about it. I know it's got some very – you know, you've got Bless You, and you, mm. uh, but I, I just – it just doesn't appeal to me at all. I think the sound, yeah. the sound of it does, the sound of it doesn't appeal to it's me. It's not an album I listen to a lot, to be honest, and um, because it's not by Paul. No, no, no but seriously, but well, it's oh. – <laughs> but it's a uh, – you know, listening to it again, it's – yeah, there's not. It's hard to find some space in the record at times, but also, you know, you kind of can see what Lennon's doing. Oh, this is a bit spectry, or you know, the other big track on the album is Number Nine Dream, and that's kind of got yep. a Georgie, George yep. Harrison guitar kind of running through it. And I'm kind of, it's kind of hard to say. Well, what is the John Lennon sound specifically? Yes, I mean he he would later dismiss this album as a sort of work of a, a, a hack, a mm. sort of a, cra a craftsman. But, but he said that about it, everything almost sometimes, didn't he? It, it, yeah, yeah. But I think part part of the rewriting of history is this is an album he made when he was not with Yoko. Well, it's an album that I think, uh, is it the Rolling Stone review that says it's kind of the first album he's ever made completely on his own. He produced yeah. it on his own. Yep. Yoko isn't there. The other Beatles aren't there. He's totally on his own. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that shows a little bit that yeah. he's he's sort of throwing the kitchen sink at it. You know the song the song that I really do like is uh, "Nobody Loves You When You're Dying and Out." Yes, that's which great. is that sort of acoustic. But again, there's a little section in the middle of that 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 sort of the band comes in and it's a big arranged section, and and I think it just takes away from what is a very uh, sort of heartfelt uh, acoustic stripped back song. Yes. Um, and, and this is why I, I think a lot of these songs work much better in their demo versions on Men Love Avenue. Yeah, it's, it's, it's perhaps an album that, you know, could get a, you know, double CD version or a stripped down version. There, there, there's probably something else there that could be teased out if, if there if is stuff think, in the uh, Yeah. I, I, and again, I think part of the uh, sort of historic problem is as i say this is an album he made when may pang was mm. was with him so she's credited on the album she i think she she's the one that's doing the john voice in the background of number nine dream yeah she she's not in the video that came out after 1980 yeah. Yoko has, has sort of recast that uh so again there's this this changing of history and slightly airbrushing effect and i think 
1980 interviews, this is the album that he was quite dismissive of. It's interesting because, you know, if, if you're buying, you know, if you're heading into to buying um, uh, Walls and Bridges contemporaneously in, in 1974, there's no assumption that Yoko's ever coming back, really. No, I mean that's that's over. I think yeah. as far as the, as far as the music press are concerned, as far as the fans are concerned, you know, he's he's very publicly with May Pang. May Pang is actually on the record. She's credited on the record. Yeah. They're, they're they're seen uh, out and about. Um, so yeah, that that's that, that that's gone. That that relationship is gone. Um, this seems to me to be. There's no hint uh, from this record. I think that that. John has any uh, notion of, of, of getting back with Yoko if you sort of analyzing lyrics I and mean, he's always someone that writes very personally and yeah. you can sort of get an insight uh, you know you don't get that what he what he does do is you know as you say there's a little bit of George Harrison style guitar um, on the track beef jerky which is a basically an instrumental he he lifts the riff from let me roll it hmm from Band on the Run, which is a, a, a recent, then very recent track from Paul. Um, he's quoting a couple of lines from Beatles lyrics. Uh, uh, Going Down on Love has the line, somebody please, please help me. Yeah. And it's, uh, surprise, surprise, Sweet Murder Paradox has that beep, beep, yeah. In the fade. Yeah. Thing. So, you know, he's he's ticking boxes and again maybe it is it's that it's a little bit contrived it's it's kind of you bring all of those things together and you try and uh, you end up with something that's less than the sum of its parts perhaps well there's a lot of recording going on um by all four beatles across the summer of 1974 and in june paul heads over to nashville and he did have this thing in the 70s where he would kind of shake up wherever he was recording you know so he goes to nashville um with uh, with wings and uh, jeff Britton is uh, into as the drummer <laughs> he's uh, yeah. broken his foot because of a martial arts injury so he's off to a great start you know he can't even take any drugs to get better because he's just better, he's drug free he's drug free Jeff Britton probably 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 Jimmy McCulloch is taking his share of the drugs yes and um, Paul they head over to Nashville and they get a couple of uh, tracks down Uh, Junior's Farm Sally G Walking in the Park with Eloise Hey Diddle Bridge Over the River Sweet Wild Prairie a bunch of songs but the main one main three there are Junior's Farm Sally G and Walking in the Park with Eloise and Junior's Farm is uh, later in the year is going to be coming out as another one of those standalone singles and you're, 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 can you tell me what that song is about? Junior's Farm. Just break it, the lyrics it, down line by line. It's, it's, it's about the farm deep. he's on, like the farm he's recording, is it? Yeah, but there's an Eskimo and there's a, a oh that thing, a, yeah. a sea lion, and there's a. a no, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's, um, you know, it's all to do with salamanders and movements on his shoulder. It's placeholder yeah. lyrics that got elevated <laughs> into the next dimension by, by some I, good weed, <laughs> dynamite weed, dynamite weed, dynamite weed. I do, um, I do love that song. Yes, I, mean, I, I, I sometimes do struggle with the lyric <laughs> but um uh but but i do love it and the guitar work on it uh is by jimmy mccullough is just fantastic it's a fantastic debut well one of the things is you know looking looking um looking at a few bits and pieces before uh you know recording this podcast was looking at the state's state of the u.s charts at that time you know and something like junior's farm sits in very well with you know stuff like steve miller you know that's kind of that kind of chugging you know windows down american rock kind of thing that uh that uh, something Um, like steve miller does well yeah doesn't play so well in 
cork <laughs> no, but, you know it's it's uh well the b-side though the b-side is kind yeah. of this kind of country ish uh salutation yeah, which because, was uh, it turned out to be a hit in its own right eventually yeah, because because only only paul could go to nashville and, and tell them how to write a country song well you know he's just just he's just spreading he's his talent I'm, around isn't he <laughs> i'm going to uh I, I found the details of where they stayed so it was in the town of lebanon tennessee oh that's a ron sexsmith song yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, and it was uh, the, on the farm of Norbert Curly Putman Jr. Oh, and he wrote the Green Green Grass of Home. Isn't that the pop fact? Uh, you you're just you're just plucking that from the air. That's but, yes, it's not as if I wrote it down somewhere or you wrote it yeah, down somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so Paul is recording in Nashville, and George is recording in um, FP Shot, his home studio in Friar Park, and uh, he's starting to put together, uh, you know, the, the bits and pieces that's going to become the Dark Horse album yeah, later in the year. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's working on that. Um, but before we leave, Paul, can we oh, talk yeah. about the uh, the piano tape? Yes. Yes, this is a. I mean, if anyone hasn't heard the piano tape, well, yeah. How would you describe the piano tape? Well, this is this is supposedly Paul in one sitting, just at a piano with a, a cassette recorder or a tape machine, and just running through a bunch of songs. Um, the only version I've ever heard is really ropey. Um, mm sound quality but what is interesting about it is the number of songs that are on this that subsequently crop up on other albums it's, it's amazing it's one hour long and it does all sound like one sitting and it's yeah. you know I, I know we we have our team paul and all that kind of stuff but you kind of listen to it and he's he, he really is a guy just riffing on okay what's what's in my memory bank what what have i got going on and he's just rolling through all these different songs and this is this is july 74 that it goes down uh, yeah. this this piano recording and i said it's it's 60 minutes long and yeah he starts off will, will i list some of the songs here yep yep there's about 20 odd songs on it so it starts with million miles which turns up on back to the egg mull of kintyre is yep. he sings at the start. So this is three years before it gets recorded. And the, the thing that's interesting is you listen to this, the, the, this, this piano tape of Mull of Kintyre, and you're thinking, what did Denny write exactly? You know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. all kind of there. Um, I'll Give You a Ring, which is one of my favorite uh, Paul songs, which is one of those songs that when I'm 64 style, he just had in his back pocket for years and years and years. Um, I'm going to skip through some of these. Womankind getting closer with his salamander placeholder lyric is there yeah. from Back to the Egg. And the, rock, the Rockestra theme is played there. Um, Call Me Back Again, Lunchbox Odd Socks, Treat Her Gently, Lonely Old People, You Gave Me the Answer. So some of these are getting teed up for, you know, he's obviously trying to clear his head to see what's going to go on yeah, Venus and Venus Mars because that's yeah. on the horizon. Uh, waiting for the sun to shine, Blackpool sunshine, and you heard Girlfriend, the Michael yes. Jackson track is yeah. on this tape. Uh, I Lost My Little Girl, the famous you know, first song he ever wrote and yeah. that little middle eight bit, but the first song I ever wrote that he does in Unplugged in 1991. Um, uh, Upon a Hill, Sea, Sweet Little Bird, Pardon's Cry, and Suicide is there as well. Suicide, Suicide. he's not letting that go. He's not I mean, letting that, 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 that's a song that's been kicking around since the Let It Be session. Yeah, it's, it's uh, and uh, yeah, Suicide's terrible, but it does pop up, uh, you know, in, in fragmentary form on McCartney 1 and he's still thinking about it in the back of his mind you know so yeah. it's and, a fascinating tape it, it is i mean if you could it, it's not great quality there is a copy of it uh on on youtube one of the really interesting things is the treat her gently lonely old people which is yeah. already it's already spliced together it's it's written as a single entity uh, yeah, yeah. 
entity. Um, but yeah, it's a it, it's if you can cope with the poor quality, it's a fascinating insight into the way he works or the way his mind works. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a really the the fluidity of how he's flipping from one song to yeah. the other, and he's yeah. just got this mental rolodex of pop songs that like for a guy who doesn't write music. Um, it's 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 a, it's kind of a staggering thing to 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 hear, um, and and also in July, Paul and Linda meet up with John and May Pang again. This time in New York City. Yes, so this is a, a again, this is a, a a recurring feature around this time that that clearly the relationship between John and Paul is is on the mend. Um, they're they're seeing each other socially, uh, yeah. and and again, I don't know if this is the point to talk about this but but the this sort of tantalizing prospect of uh you, you know paul starting to think well maybe i could get john to come and sing or be participate in the next uh wings album that is a notion that he wanted john to have some small role in venus and mars that that was yes. one of the things that he thought he could pull off Yes. Um, I mean, the, I, I have heard this go so far as to say the song that he wanted him to sing was Call Me Back Again. Right. Um, and one of the places this crops up uh, is in the Tony Visconti autobiography. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, he, he tells a story where, you know, John is talking to him and saying, you know, oh, I'm, uh, you know, Paul wants me to do this and I think I'm going to do this. Do you think I should do this? And Visconti makes some reference about the fact that McCartney cut him out of the credits for some of the string arrangements on Band on the Run. All right. And the atmosphere changes. I can't repeat the language. But, uh, and John says, yeah, you're right. I'm not going to do it. And then Tony Visconti saying, oh, it's my fault that, you know. And, and again, you've always got this people writing themselves into the center of, of the story. Um, but it, that's in the Visconti book. And May Pang in her book certainly focuses very much on the fact that she was encouraging him to go and John was asking. You know, there were, there were distinct conversations yeah. about the fact, should I do that? Well, May Pang eventually becomes Mrs. Tony Visconti. It's, it's that all kind one of, big it's family. All one big family. Um, and so as the summer rolls by in August, uh, Ringo is starting to put down uh, the tracks for his next solo album. He's had this huge success with Ringo, yep. the two number ones, the top 10 single. Um, uh, and that the album is Goodnight Vienna. And just as a side point, it's worth pointing out that this is the point in time when Richard Nixon resigns, start of August 74. So that's what's happening in the world. Is this, is this because Ringo is recording a new album? Is I, he... think, <laughs> I think he just wanted to clear his calendar yeah. uh, so he could, you know. He could listen to it, with the, give his full attention to the new Ringo Starr album. Exactly. He'd given his country enough. And um, so Goodnight Vienna comes in and I, I can't help but feel that, you know, the album Goodnight Vienna is, uh, it, it, it's kind of, it, it evolves into a poor carbon copy of the Ringo album. It is. I think, I think it, it, it is very much, uh, you know, let's copy that. Let's just take that as the template. We get the superstar collaborations. We'll get, you know, the other Beatles to participate, write songs and, 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 you know, but it's, it's again, it's a stellar lineup. Mm. Uh, it is stellar. And I think Goodnight Vienna is, is, is a great John song. It's better than, yeah. perhaps better than I'm the Greatest. And it's a song that, you know, John's in the studio. I think it's the end of June. He cuts a version of Goodnight Vienna to send to Ringo. And yeah. then we, we skip to August. And, you know, Ringo's recording is pretty faithful to John's original demo, which turns up in the anthology 
Lennon anthology yes. album later on. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, so it's a song that I'm fond of. But you, you kind of look at the track listing, and you know, Ringo has your sixteen, and so Goodnight Vienna has only you. You know, yeah. there's there's kind of a like for like going on. But that's I I have to say I really like the version of Only You, and again that's another sort of Lennon collaboration in the sense that he suggests that he records a demo. And I, I think I'm right in saying that Ringo effectively sings over right. the, the Lennon demo. And then Lennon's vocals are, I mean, it's because it's, it's very, very similar. I think we, we've done this sort of experiment where you, yes, you can, you, you can, you can change, over, you can overlay the two, the two songs and create a, you know, if Giles Martin is listening or, <laughs> Uh, you you can create a, a Ringo and John duet by by merging those two tracks. Uh, but Paul isn't there, perhaps because he's busy, and George isn't there. I wonder why. Yes, should we should we talk about that? Well, or? yes, it, it doesn't. It isn't common knowledge yet at this point in time, but it might be common knowledge to the participants that. Uh, well, what's yeah. George doing again? Uh, George is supposedly there is a situation mm-hmm. uh, with uh, with Ringo's wife Maureen. Mm. And I think I think Maureen only ever refers to it as the situation. <laughs> right. Uh, the situation um, being that George is having an affair with Ringo Starr's wife, Harry Krishna. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> You'll stay with your wife, Harry Krishna. Yeah. Harry Krishna. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So, so uh, the, you know, the, the, I don't know that I've ever heard Ringo talk about this, not surprisingly. No. Patty, Patty Boyd mentions it in her book and there is a a, a book uh, by Chris O'Dell who was sort of everybody's assistant at the time um, where she goes into a lot uh, sort of a background but basically there had come a point where Maureen and George seem to be having an affair there's some dispute Maureen never acknowledged that that it got beyond a, a platonic um, relationship and at one point George actually just sort of says to Ringo you know hey man I'm I'm in love with your wife. Yeah. Um, so things I imagine are a little tense uh, <laughs> between between George and Ringo. And again, I don't know, but I'm assuming that's why George was not offering songs and uh, offering. It's quite possible after how close they'd been working uh, so far in the seventies. George and Ringo, yeah. yeah. George I mean, you, quite strikingly absent from. Yeah. So when you him. look, at, you look at what those how collaborative George had been on the Ringo album and the earlier singles and then suddenly bang he's nowhere to be seen yeah yeah uh, and then John uh, he goes off to Colorado to work with Elton John to return the favour so to speak yes yes and again this is Elton John you know he's working with John John's working with him uh, Elton John is also on the Goodnight Vienna album he and Bernie Taupin wrote a song for that but um uh, yeah, this, so this is Elton is is recording a cover version of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds as that's going to be his new um, single and he's recording an album and he's working at, at Caribou Studios in Colorado. Um, there's also on the B side of that single, there's a Lennon track called One Day at a Time. Yes. Which is, is off uh, Mind Games. Now, May Pang in her book is very clear that John also plays on that b-side this is a topic of heated debate um <laughs> answers on a postcard uh no one seems there's equally adamant voices out there saying no um you, you know this 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 didn't happen yeah. if you if you go onto the internet uh, uh, and sort of google caribou studios you can see lots of photographs of elton john and john and may pang and ray cooper um a little bit of background about that studio that i dug up just today when I was looking at this, it, it, they were owned by a chap called James Garrico, if I'm pronouncing that right, mm-hmm. um, who was involved in mixing RAM, 
Oh. Um, so he t- recounts the fact that he was actually quite nervous about meeting Lennon for the first time because of his involvement with Ram and also because Lennon had been very vocal in criticizing Garrico's production of, I think it was the Blood, Sweat and Tears album. Right. So there was a little bit of, of you know, but he was also at this stage playing with and managing the Beach Boys. Oh, right. Uh, okay. Yeah. So Carl... Wilson and Bruce Johnson are hanging out. The Beach Boys are trying to record the same time as Elton John. A couple of them end up, I, I think, uh, Bruce and Carl end up on Don't Let the Sun Go Down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On me. Um, and he was also the manager of Chicago. Jeez, he's a busy man. Which is a band I know nothing about. Yeah, I have one or two of their records, and they they, they, they seem to yeah they seem to never end. Well, he, um, he his, his uh, he 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 had a deal with the record company, and he got fifty one percent of all the profits, and the band got forty nine percent of all. Oh them. my gosh! So they they let him go. Uh, yeah. Much like much like our own arrangement here. <laughs> um, the other, of course, the main artistic event that happens in August nineteen seventy four is that um, Paul goes off to. Uh, Abbey Road Studios to make the uh, unreleased until 2010 film One Hand Clapping, which is a high watermark in the career of Jeff Britton, uh, if anyone has seen it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> have you, you have seen it, have you, One I Hand have, Clapping? I have, I have seen it. I have um, seen it. It's, it's all right. It's a bit of a time capsule. It's Wings performing live in Abbey Road, um, you know, playing band on the run material and they they do live and let die with an orchestra and jeff Britton does some karate moves in between the songs just showing us what he can do you know elvis style almost showing showing what he can do to jimmy mcculloch if uh (laughs) if needs be needs be if needs be but this this doesn't this doesn't actually see the light of day all for all that this is an artistic high point of the year (laughs) this, this does not uh um uh, it know. doesn't appear till yeah it appears in the oh. band on the run box set in 2010 yeah. and it, again like bruce mcmouse which we talked about before it seems to be that wings make these recordings and then the band changes and by the time the film has been processed and it's back from the chemist there's somebody else in the band paul, yeah paul has sacked everybody paul, paul, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and they're back to square one and you know yeah. you, you wouldn't want the audience to get confused is this no. band wings or not i i don't recognize that drummer that's what would yeah. have happened that's what would have happened uh, exactly Exactly. And um, there's also... Anyway, we can, yeah. we, can, we can watch it in the Band on the Run box set, is what you're saying. Yes, it's in the Band on the Run box set, and it's 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 uh, it's fine. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and also in August 1974, George goes to see um, the West End, London West End show, John, Paul, George, Ringo and Bert, which is a play um, that kind of winds him up a bit. Yes, this is this is the sort of start of if you like other people um, exploiting the Beatles name. Um, and uh, there, there's an interview with George around the time of cloud nine. Um, and someone says, Oh, did you, the interviewer says, did you ever see that? And he went, I saw it up to the intermission and I was there with Derek Taylor. And I said to him, either we have to leave now or I'm going to jump up on that stage and throttle those people. And I thought, oh, you would have paid good money to see that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but it, it, I can I, imagine I, it is the kind of thing that would wind George up. 
Yes. I mean, what he says is all these idiots acting out people, uh, you know, it's like a rumor. It's like those Beatle cartoons. It's inaccurate, inaccurate. It's nauseating having been a Beatle. Yeah. So yes, this is this is this is you, you can't think of anything uh, more perfectly designed uh, to annoy uh, George Harrison. But why um, would he even go? You know, like it's kind of, you know, I, I, who you, thought that he would have liked that? You know, you think you know Derek Taylor probably said this will this will be a laugh. Uh, <laughs> Let's wind was, George up. It was a huge. It was a huge success. Fifteen thousand people attended. It was ran for eight weeks. It yeah. won the. Eight- Standard London Critics Award for the best new musical of 1974. I don't know what the competition uh, <laughs> was. Paul, p- bits of it were broadcast on the BBC. Uh, Paul came out and criticised it specifically for being biased against him and in right. favour of Lennon. The, the, you know, the surprise. Um, and um, uh, according to uh, Hard, I can never pronounce his name. Sounds soon. Soon. He, uh, Paul, was able to block a, a proposed film. Uh, oh, really? So, so there you go. Yeah, so George is not happy with that play, but it, it probably doesn't matter because John has got other things on his mind, hasn't he? Yeah, John is back in uh, New York looking at UFOs. Yeah, he claims he saw a UFO at the end of August 74. Yeah, so he, he's sort of standing at a balcony in this apartment that he's sharing with May Pang. And uh, it's in the middle of New York City. Uh, and he... Uh, uh, Claims a UFO descended, hovered, and then <laughs> disappeared. Um, and of course, this will this will turn up in a in a lyric uh, to "Nobody Told Me." Yes, there's UFOs over New York, and I'm too surprised. There you go. Yeah, there uh, you go. There's a story for everything. Um, and then we're into September, and George has the proper formal launch of the Dark Horse LP. So this is when the Splinter album comes out. Yes. Have so you listened is, to this? Is it any? I yes. I, I I had heard a couple of tracks of this sort of every now and again. You sort of hear that they pop up, but I, I found a copy of it, uh, a, a vinyl copy, um, uh, about six or seven months ago, and mm. it's a fantastic album. Oh, is it? Okay. Um, you know, it's 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 almost a George Harrison album, but without him singing. I mean, his guitar work is all over it. He clearly you know put a lot of effort into this you've got gary wright billy preston jim keltner alvin lee um cost of fine town was the the single which is sort of minor okay uh minor hit top 20 in the uk um this is a band that mal evans uh discovered there's a book by michael lang on george harrison and he he describes this as uh virtually a george harrison album and he also attributes some of george's difficulties later in the year to the fact that he put so much effort into this album in particular and the launch of the the label uh generally yeah um but uh i think matt snow in mojo describes it as a lost minor classic i'm not sure if it's but danny harrison has relaunched the dark Dark horse Horse so i'm i'm optimistic that perhaps some of these uh these old dark horse records will will Re-emerged. It is interesting, this trope that they had, you know, both in the late 60s with Apple and then on and off during the 70s of, oh, you know, we're going to get behind someone and give them a load mm-hmm. of time and launch them. It's not really something that Paul did. Um, and you could argue that maybe John did it with like Nielsen's album and all the rest. But, you know, there's still these moments where they're like, 
yeah, let's like, well, did they believe yeah. in these people, or you know, were they a bit misguided, or I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think you know, again, there's probably an entire episode on on Apple and what went wrong and yeah. the good points and the bad points. But you know, Paul, Paul was very enthusiastic at the beginning with you know Mary Hopkin, uh, but more to I think, uh, unfortunately not be able to get Mary to come on to the show, but yeah. uh, she, she doesn't give, she doesn't she give doesn't interviews, give but, 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 but she was um, sort of pushed towards a slightly show busy direction by Paul where her, her real uh, sort of love was, was sort of pure folk music. But Paul was sort of quite uh, involved at the beginning with Apple, but then that became the battleground for Klein. Yeah. And I think Paul just, but, um, but Paul but certainly, never really went after talent in the seventies at all though, you know? No, no, he didn't. You, he didn't. No, no. But the, uh, no. Um, I suppose he had. He had, McGear was his his project. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, and it's interesting. September seventy four. You know, the, one of the more interesting kind of battles in rock uh, evolves <laughs> in the pages of the Melody Maker between Todd Rundgren and uh, John Lennon. And so, you know, John is getting all these news reports about the lost weekend and Todd Rundgren says in Melody Maker, John Lennon ain't no revolutionary. He's a flippin' idiot, man, <laughs> shouting about revolution and acting like an ass. And, um, you know, he goes on to say, you know, uh, you know, he, he doesn't want a revolution. He just wants attention. Like the Beatles had no other style except then being the Beatles. And this kind of gets John nice, really. riled a bit, doesn't he? Yeah, and I mean, uh, the, the, there is so much. We cast our minds back a few years. His his sort of breakup with Paul is played out in in the pages of uh, Melody Maker yeah. as well. You know, whenever you and I get to that stage, we'll just write each other letters. In uh, you know, people will see it on Twitter, basically. People will see it on Twitter, basically. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah. So this this you know never one to resist. Um, you know, responding. John then pens an open letter, or what he describes an opened lettuce to sod. <laughs> What runtle stuntle? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so there's kind of shades of a Spaniard in the works yes. uh, in his own right. This kind of playing with 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 language there, and he just goes for it and and uh, you know um, uh, refutes all of these things. And the the best uh, response is, I think you're just upset because I didn't know who you were when I met you backstage at the Rainbow. And it just completely punctures, um, uh, you know, Rundgren's yeah. pomposity. And it's, it, the thing I like is, you know, he, he has these kind of seven or eight points in the letter. But when he says, you know, you say the Beatles had no other style other than being the Beatles, that covers a lot of style, man, including your own, which yeah. is pretty true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but he does sign off by saying, "Anyway, however much you hurt me, darling, I'll always love you." It is very funny. You should be, you know, again, go and go and look for this. Uh, but you yeah. know, Todd, you know, Todd, very beatly sounding yes. uh, when he wants to be, and um, yeah, he certainly no, has a lot of love for the 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 Fabs, you know. Yeah, and he's uh, tours occasionally with uh, Ringo. He tours with Ringo. He did a tour last year with uh, Mickey Dolan's of White Album Classics. You know, it was quite yeah. an interesting yeah. tour. Yeah, so he's, he's not he's not above, uh, you know, trading on the Beatles. But I sometimes think if he's on stage with Ringo, does that does that letter, you know, 
pop into his head. Oh, when we think about these things. They don't think about those. They don't think no. about these things at all. Um, no. September 74 also has the first ever Beatles Fest in New yes. York City, where 8,000 Beatles fans attend. And it's interesting. This is the first thing like this. So the Beatles are still innovating in 1974. Yeah. They're having yeah. the first massive fan convention. And what should that be like? And what happens? And they all are kind of tangentially involved in that a little bit. Yes, I mean, so they, they, they send something, they, they each sort of send uh, something along to be auctioned. Um, Apple send the Shea Stadium film uh, yeah. to, to be to be broadcast. Uh, supposedly Lennon actually thought about going, uh, but decided, you know, not to be. He was nervous about all the crowds, but he, you know, sent May yes. off, uh, who, who bought some memorabilia, including the photograph of Lennon in a doorway in Hamburg by yeah. Jürgen Vollmer that subsequently became the cover of the rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, uh, LP. And uh, and also in September, Ringo gets on this whole record label bandwagon. So maybe a little less well known than George's Dark Horse Records. Ringo launches Ringo Records. Ring, yes. Ring, ring, Ringo. Record, like Ringo, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like like Ringo the, Roses. Yeah, great. It, it's a Scottish record label. <laughs> um, it doesn't really... Uh, yeah, it doesn't really fly Ringo Records, does it? It doesn't put out an awful lot. No, no. I think this. we sort of mentioned that there seemed to be some suggestion that George and Ringo might have been interested in buying Apple. And it yeah. just seemed to be, you know... Uh, the, I think you the, did. You think, you know, the Beach Boys had a record label. The Stones had a record label. Yeah. George now has one. Well, Ringo must have one as well. Um, the only... I, I've heard this album, but I don't have it. Mm-hmm. Um is uh, an album called Startling Music by David Henschel, um, which is an instrumental uh, sort of played on synthesizers. It's a complete instrumental version of the Ringo album from 1973. Yeah, I find it hard to believe that this exists, that there is a, an, an analog synthesizer instrumental version of Ringo's Ringo album. But I, it's, I feel uh, compelled, like many listeners right now, to just run out into the streets and listen to it. <laughs> like, uh, um, once, well, listen to it once. It's his Thrillington album. Yes, it's Ringo's Thrillington. Yeah, um, um, what a strange thing that that is. It strange. It, it's it's on. It's not anything you would listen to more than once, or possibly <laughs> only listen to one track just to get or, get an idea. Just to get an idea of it. But uh, they signed eleven artists yeah. to this label and released fifteen singles and five albums between nineteen seventy five and nineteen seventy eight and I couldn't name a single one. Yeah. Good lord. And it has but, a yeah. It, but there's a there's a little kind of discreet that that could be your hobby. That could be your <laughs> go, to, go collect all the Ringo records. Collect reasons. all the Ringo records. Oh, yeah. They probably didn't sell very much, so they're probably actually quite collectible. I I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're going you're, you're gonna to tell us about the... Uh... The final release. On, oh, yeah, the f- on... Well, the final release is uh, Dirk and Stig of the Ruttles singing King Ganguly, a novelty, <laughs> a novelty single. And obviously, one of those was Eric Idle, which was his only Ruttles, the only actual time he appeared on a Ruttles related record. Yeah. Yeah. We don't just yeah. summon Eric Idle in case he, you know, gets all lucky yeah. with us like he did on yeah. Twitter back in the day. Anyway, um, but by the end of September, uh, John is reappearing in public uh, because Walls and Bridges is about to come out. Walls and Bridges yes. gets released on the 26th of September, 74. And yep. um, whatever gets you through the night comes out as the attendant single. And John is, you know, going on the promo trail for this. He's appearing on uh, New York radio stations and these are on YouTube. They're hilarious to listen to. They're really great. Imagine a morning radio show being hosted by John Lennon and he's quick-witted and he's clear-headed and he's happy and he's funny and he's promoting his album and he's playing Beatles tunes and he's just top of the top of the top of his game. And he's he's reading out commercials for uh, Mattress Mike. (laughs) <laughs> mattress Mick, Mick. yes mattress Mick. <laughs> he's doing all sorts oh. of stuff it's it's really something else and uh, it's it's an awful lot of fun and you know uh, september gives way into october george is still working on the dark horse uh, album um you know george and ringo and maureen and patty boyd and everything all seems to come to a head this um, yeah it, it this, all so becomes this, a big mess really it, it, it sort of becomes public. Uh, so George's relationship with Maureen uh, becomes public. Um, Ringo's threatening a divorce. John supposedly is very angry with George yeah. uh, over this. Um, they don't actually divorce until uh, July uh, 1975. Um, again, I, I would have a look at that um, Chris O'Dell book, Pete, uh, Pete, Peter Brown. Uh, yeah touches on this in in his book the love you make uh, it, it's not the most edifying period i think of or incident of anybody's uh, uh history of the Beatles. yeah no it's, it all gets a bit uh, quite messy um but what happens in the background is slowly uh whatever gets you through the night starts to you know tiptoe up the up the charts you know yeah yeah and, um, and again this is in the context of elton's bet yes um now having said that john again we, t- we we talked a little bit about capital and their advertising campaign for band on the run uh, at the start of the year john is really throwing himself into the campaign as you say he's doing radio shows but there's the yep. whole this listen to this advert listen to this badge uh, yeah there's a huge listen, campaign listen to, that, listen, yeah. listen to this poster and you know you can still pick up t-shirts uh, re- reproduction t-shirts with lennon the walls and bridges with listen to this uh, uh particular whatever the promotional <laughs> item uh yeah, and it's interesting. And it goes hand in hand because coming down the pipe in November is Ringo's Goodnight Vienna album. And there are TV yeah. adverts for Walls and Bridges and Goodnight Vienna on Apple Records and Tapes. And Ringo is narrating John's ad and John is narrating Ringo's ad, which yeah. is very and sweet. I have to say those ads are probably the best thing about those two albums. <laughs> they do. I mean, you look at those and you think, my God, record companies were making so much money even out of the records that just went in and out of the charts, you know, 
Like there was, yeah. they were awash with with cash because Ringo's album, he's like in a spaceship on top of the Capitol building in in LA. It's bonkers. Yeah, that's the with with Harry Nilsson. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Harry is sitting in a deck chair in the dressing gown that he wears on the front cover of you know this is his famous kind of disheveled look. So he's just sitting in a baseball cap uh, for the video for Only You. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and there's a marching band in the ad. And, and <laughs> uh, you know, as you say, they're clearly throwing a shed load of money. A shed load. Uh, a shed load. And the other thing that's happening then in October is, you know, John still has this specter of the rock and roll album hanging over him. And he meets up with uh, yes. Morris Levy. Yes. Right? So what, what, what yeah. goes on there? So this is this is this is really the the sort of the the uh, the first act for, of of what will happen in early seventy five. So Mor- Morris Levy and Lennon have a meeting. So Levy is the holder of the copyright to uh, Chuck Berry's "You Can't Catch Me." Uh, he's suing uh, Lennon because of the similarity with "Come Together." It's a long story, but basically. They had come to a settlement agreement, and uh, one of the, the terms of that settlement was that Lennon would include three songs for which Levy held the copyright on his next album. And obviously, at the time that he agreed to that, um, he thought his next album was going to be the rock and roll. roll. Yeah, um, but as we know, Spectre ran off with the the tapes. So Levy felt that he had uh, reneged or, or or broken the deal. This meeting on the 8th of October was to discuss the possibility of completing that and Morris Levy marketing it through a television campaign. So this was the new thing you advertise on TV. Um, And of course, Lennon, just being completely naive, essentially goes up to Levy's farm with the band, starts rehearsing, lets Levy have a copy of the tape uh, and... uh, Levy does what all gangsters uh, do. <laughs> he uh, puts he, out he, his own copy, doesn't he? He put, put out his own copy with these rough mixes. And this this leads on to a whole... Again, there's probably uh, a whole episode about, uh, you know, suing the Beatles for fun and profit. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, this, this is kind of the start of Lennon just walking blindly into another lawsuit the following year. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, the reason why Lennon was sued for Come Together and not Lennon and McCartney sued for Come Together, because McCartney's name is on Come Together, is that Lennon right at the start says, yeah, I wrote that, Paul didn't write that. Isn't that the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And And the guy said, okay, I'll just not sue Paul then. Yeah, we'll just sue you. I mean, I, 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 I that that's bizarre. It is. Yeah, it's they, kind of they, crazy. You know, bizarre that they didn't they didn't go after uh, after both of them. And speaking of chaos, also around this time, Ringo and Nielsen start scouting a TV special because <laughs> Son of Dracula. The cues are still around the block for Son of Dracula by the yeah. end of seventy four. Yeah queuing for refunds <laughs> um yeah so this is this is this is just uh, the the concept uh behind this both the fact that the the two main uh, uh sort of harry and ringo thought this would be great but also that somebody at least at the beginning was prepared to bankroll this yeah. and it was called ringo and harry's night out mm. um and it was supposed to be a uh, literally them on the time. It was going to be a mixture of live action and uh, cartoons. Uh, uh, there's a chap who was involved in it was saying, you know, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was Tim Bruckner who did the uh, artwork for the Ringo album. He was doing the cartoons and he said, yeah, it seemed to get to, a, um, you know, 
there, there is film, there is footage. Yeah, there's a showreel somewhere that nobody's ever seen, yeah. and it's probably sitting in the yeah. back of somebody's drawer, a five or five minute showreel. And I, I, it's not totally out of the realm of possibility because, you know, the point had kind of gotten a bit of traction and that had done well. That was a cartoon, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that could have been a thing. But yeah, it, it, could, never... it, it, it could have been another. Uh... Bruce McMice. It could have been another Bruce McMice, I know. Uh, so yeah, Ringo and Harry's Big Night Out never never came. They they were characters who landed in Rockland, populated by rock stars. I mean, they must have um, really thought how long and hard about it. I'm, I'm tempted to say what were they on, but I think we know. We all know they were on. So other small things that happened in October 74, the McGear album finally comes out that's been recorded at the start of the year. Now, Ed Sullivan dies on the 13th yeah, of October yeah. 74. You know, that's sad. And the Country Hams released their single, which is Paul and Wings in Disguise. And the nice thing about Walking in the Park with Eloise, Eloise the, the song, is that it's written by Paul's dad, Jim. Yeah. And that's yeah. a nice touch, really. It is. He. 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 Again, there, there's. There's something odd here as well. You know, as this is. This is a song that's not written down anywhere. So as this is just has been in Paul's head since he was what thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old, and it suddenly pops out fully arranged. Yeah. Uh, that. That's. That's quite a. Feet. But I like the quote when, you know, Paul said to his dad, oh, dad, you wrote this song. And his dad said, I didn't write it. I made it up, which yeah. is. Yes, it's, it's that so notion. <laughs> well, it, it sort of harks back to the kind of comments Paul and John were making. You know, we, we songs just exist in the air. We didn't yeah. know you could own them. We, you know. Uh, you you know. can't own property. That was uh, also what people yeah. thought back in the day. Yeah. Anyway, let's not get uh, political. Um, but uh, also at the end of October, John's famous peace sign in front of the Statue of Liberty. That photo gets taken yes. on the 30th of October. But the person with the biggest, or with the busiest October, rather, is George Harrison, whose Dark Horse tour is about to start on the 2nd of November. And he decides, well, you know, October's got 31 days in it. I'll finish an album and I'll rehearse for a tour and I'll do all sorts of stuff. And that wasn't a good idea. Yeah, this is this is him setting the for his his absolutely barnstorming tour of, <laughs> of, of 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 America, the keenly anticipated first tour of America by a solo fatal. So he has this intense. It's something like three weeks oh, of we're, we're, recording. We're, we're, we're going to talk about this, are we? Well, I think we're going to have to talk about uh, George's okay. triumph. He has this intense three weeks of trying yeah. to finish the album Dark Horse. And the the legend goes that he blows his vocal cords out and he's, yeah. he gets very, very hoarse, H-O-A-R-S-E. Yeah. And uh, he, at the same time, he's getting a, a tour, to, getting a touring band up to scratch. And by the end of the uh, the month on the 23rd of October, he gives a, a press conference in order to set up the album and the tour. And, yeah. you know, he's pretty... I think the word you might use for George for the rest of 1974 is terse, maybe. Terse. Uh, I, I think that's a fair comment. I think that's a fair comment. Terse uh, and to the point. Terse and to the point. So he says at this press conference, you know, Paul's a fine bass player, but to tell you the truth, uh, I couldn't join a band with Paul McCartney. It's just from a musical point of view. You know, he's, you know, he says that the Beatles weren't that good in the press conference and he's, 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 he's being hard to love. He is. I mean, I think, I think, what he's doing is trying to downplay the expectation that what the audience are going to get here is Beatle George. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's, he repeats this idea, you know, I could work with John Lennon, uh, but, you know, Paul could, couldn't really work with him. Um, uh, I am not Beatle George. I am George Harrison. And, and this, this tour will feature Billy Preston. It will feature Tom Scott from, and, and, 
from the Chevy Chase show, yeah. No, the Chevy Chase show. Uh, and um, uh, and it will also feature Ravi Shankar. So he's he. This is this is not a George Harrison show. It's not a Beatles show. It's something else. It's it's him trying to introduce. Um, uh, world music or Indian music to a Western audience using himself as the draw. He's trying to, yeah, I mean, if you're being charitable, the, the Dark Horse tour begins on the 2nd of November. And you could say, okay, here's a guy, he's trying to launch a record label. Uh, yep. The record label uh, has the same name as this new record. And the record is so rushed, it's not even in the shops no, by the time no. the tour starts on the 2nd of November. You could even argue he didn't need to release a record, but he still presses on. Um, Shankar is signed to the record label, so he's going to be an integral part of the tour. And, you know, he says, oh, George says at the time, oh, it's not going to be Bangladesh Mark II, but it kind of is in a way. You can kind of certainly see a thread from Bangladesh, the concert to, you know, this tour in a way. I think so. I think so. And, and uh, you know, even the format where you have an opening act is the Indian section. And then you have Billy Preston's going to have a solo spot. Uh, Tom Scott, the, 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 sax, uh, the sax player, he's, he's got a solo spot. It's, it's like Bangladesh in miniature. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so if people aren't getting the Beatles, then they expect to get Bangladesh that, and they don't get either. Yeah, and it's it's it, it, there obviously is an awful lot from this tour in the vaults somewhere. And, you know, the first, you know, I'd read about this tour for years and about how, you know, George is, you know, his voice is gone on the tour. He finds it very difficult to sing, that the crowds are very antsy, for want of a better word. Yeah, and, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're there to see a rock show. Yeah, and, uh, and they, this is in the context of what we we're talking about earlier, these kind of Dylan tours. And yeah. even though Dylan is recontextualizing his material, he's still delivering a show of sorts. You know, Crosby, Sells and Ash, The Stones, all these other tours are happening. And when we fa- finally see footage of these shows, which is in the, um, the Martin Scorsese documentary, yeah. um, Living in the Material World, uh, it's shocking. That scene, that scene that they show from the show is just, and it's beautifully shot and it looks immaculate. But when George opens his mouth, you have to think, oh my gosh, that's quite worrying. I think, I think this is, this is, this is the problem. The whole tour was filmed and there was an intent. So, so presumably, as you say, in a vault in Fire Park, there is a complete film of this tour that just never saw the light of day. Um, but it is shocking just how bad his voice is um the other aspect of the tour is the pacing of the yes. tour of the, of the set list so i i think there's a uh, uh you know you get the indian music then george does two songs then billy preston does a song then tom scott so in the first half you maybe get three or four george harrison songs and this is billed as a george harrison tour yeah and they're not the songs that people want to hear you know that he's 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 not uh going to he, he didn't want to play the song something and had it, to be cajoled into this by billy preston and ravi shankar I had to say look you've got to give them what they want but you know it's 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 it, it is frustrating because it is a bit of a lost opportunity this tour so putting the vocal issues aside for one part if he was really sincere about bringing people on a journey that involved them getting to know and love Ravi Shankar and, you know, all these other great artists who are on the stage with him. He, he should have realized that 
his role in that is to play something. I mean, it's it seems to be willfully uh, destructive what he's doing here. That you know, it, nobody's saying you can't bring all these people with you. They're just saying, you know, you have all these ingredients. Can you put them inside the cake? Can you put them in the right order, please? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's exactly it. He he is so focused on stripping away the Beatle George myth. You know, he clearly does not want to play these songs. Um, he's so focused on that that he loses sight of the ambition to spread the word about Ravi Shankar. Um, and, you know, the reviews at the time, it, it's hard to say, you know, the, the, there are some people say, oh, well, actually, the the sort of, it was the big review in Rolling Stone that really scuppered the whole thing. Yeah, now I never read that full article until you sent it to me. And yeah. it's it's by Ben Fong Torres and it's called uh, George Harrison Lumbering in the Material World. Um, back on stage for his first post-Beatles tour, the famed singer-songwriter and guitarist slowly finds his voice again. Well, that's a bit ironic because he was slowly yeah. losing his voice. And it's, it's a tough read. Uh, and it really, it, it, it kind of is the piece that you know, was the coffin for for this tour or the reporting for this tour, really? I, I think so. I think so. You know, there, there are other people that say Michael Lang in his book will say, well, look, you know, not all the reviews were bad. When, when it was good, it was great. Yeah. Uh, there were elements of this. It was just put together in the wrong way. There are people that will defend it. I haven't seen enough of it. I mean, I've heard bootlegs, but by their nature, the sound quality is pretty poor. Um, it's hard to judge. I would, li- I, I, I would like to think enough time has passed yeah. that that the film of the tour is probably something that could be released or something well, there's an archival yeah. or a historical uh, value to that there is definitely a historical value to it and you know if there's if it's any good at all then you know, people will immediately jump on the fact that actually we were wrong the whole time. People would love to be yeah. wrong about yeah, this yeah. tour, but it's yeah. really festered for a long, long time. And if you read that Ben, ben Van Torres article, it's it's really kind of heartbreaking because, you know, Bill Graham's in the in the article. He's trying to will us will this tour into a better place. Yeah. Even yeah. Ravi Shankar himself is saying, George, you gotta, you know, he's teaching George about showbiz. I'm you know I'm making my songs short and punchy. You need to do this. Yeah. You need to do that. And George is, you know, uh, I don't know whether it's, you know, he's trying to prove some kind of dissociation from a sense of self or whatever he's trying to do. But it, it, it's uh, it's really strange. And any of the bootlegs I've heard, and you can go onto YouTube and listen to versions of something, and particularly the version he sings on In My Life. Oh, my yes, God. Yes, that, that is uh, why, why he chose that song. Um, I I. I I, I don't know. I mean, he just seems the the purpose of the exercise almost seems, as you say, it's self-destructive um, because, you know, George, George was probably the most critically uh, acclaimed of the four. Yeah. He, he had the, the, the sort of the reputation and the kudos that came off the back of Bangladesh. Yeah. He, he was famed for his kind of charitable involvement. He was a massive sort of power in the recording industry um, at he the time. He had so much to gain from yeah. a seven-week tour where, you know, if he had just tweaked things 10% yeah. and he'd been in a better voice or a better health situation, that tour could have reaped huge dividends and it changed everything, that tour. It, 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 it's, it just killed all that early 70s goodwill, momentum, talent. Yeah. 
it just killed it stone dead. And, you know, the, the, what happens in the middle of all this is the Dark Horse album comes out. And I find that title track very hard to listen to. I find chunks of that album really hard to listen to. Bye Bye mm. Love, I think, is kind of ugly. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's just this, you know, it's like, well, the, the, the tour could be buried. The album can't be buried. And it gets no. these atrocious reviews. It does, uh, but I, I, I think I think it sort of feeds in that the tour has set the stage for the album. You know, people are already have have turned their face against the album before it before it even arrives. And yeah. you can you can again if you look at the contemporary review in Rolling Stone, and and this is very much led by Rolling Stone. Yeah, um, it's almost sort of character assassination. I'm not going to try and argue that uh, Dark Horse is the best thing George ever did. Uh, it it is an album I do have a a bit of a soft spot for. I don't think anybody can defend Bye Bye Love. That's a sort of in studio joke that probably should have been left uh, on the cutting room floor. But it, it, it I, I yeah. think it, it's a very definite shift away from the sound of living in the material world. It's a shift towards a more American sound. He's using an American band. There's a slightly kind of funk element to what he's doing that will come out on the tour. Um, as I, I don't think it's the best thing he ever did, but I don't think it's as bad as its reputation uh, would, would have people believe. And I, I urge people uh, to, to go you go back and... Okay, I'll go Excellent. back and I'll give it another... Yeah. <laughs> I have to admit, one of the... Uh, uh, speaking of disappointing George albums, Live in Japan is, is... Like, that's his only other tour is when he goes off to Japan in the early 90s and tours with Eric Clapton. And probably one of the best moments on Live in Japan is the version of Dark Horse on that album because he... He sings it really well. He's, he actually approaches the song really, really well on Live in Japan. And uh, the drums have that kind of proper kind of equine motion to them. It's very, very yeah. good. And, and, and if you, if you um, uh, look at the set list, you know, if he had, if he had produced that kind of set list with, the song, with his solo work up to 1974, it would have been entirely different. As you say, he was, he was riding high, number one singles in America, critically acclaimed, this is the point at which that just falls apart. And I, I think it, for all that he, uh, you know, undeniably brought this upon himself, um, he took it really badly. And uh, he, you know, he, he does recount at one point that Ben Fong Torres apologized to him uh, later. And uh, he does write a song uh, in, in that turns up on Extra Texture about the experience, uh, specifically referencing Rolling Stone. But it, it was a definite, I think, he always felt it, I think it was a, a hatchet job. It was a very definite uh, sort of character assassination.
And, you know, he's kind of famously, you know, when Dark Horse comes out as a single in the 18th of November, it, you know, the joke is it's Dark Horse as in horse yeah. voice. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he's he, there's a B-side on that, I Don't Care Anymore, which is another track <laughs> he recorded in October 74. And that's a kind of a rush job as well, isn't it? It is. That's just him literally in a studio in L.A. where he's finishing the album with an acoustic guitar. And he's just saying, okay, we've got a B-side to do. And it's, I don't care anymore. And it, it's, uh, you know, one thing about George is I think much like John, a lot of his work gives you an insight into the man. And if that's an indication of where he was going into the tour, um, uh, you, you know, that, that, that that is probably the most telling. I think it's a, it's it's available as a bonus track now. And there's a lot of other bits and pieces happening in November. So uh, Ringo's Goodnight Vienna comes out on the 15th of November 74, 18th of November 74 in the US. And um, that's a, a 33 minute album. That's a short album. Um, you like you like short albums. I do like short albums. And the, the preceding single to that is Only You. And that does become a, a hit. Um, uh, wings are prepping. and and your favorite your favorite Ringo song, the No No song. Oh God, I don't like the No No song. <laughs> just, it's just so. Um, it's a huge hit. Yeah, I suppose yeah, it is a no hit. Counting for American tastes hey, in, the in the seventies. In the seventies. In the seventies. And in November, you know, Wings are starting to prep Venus and Mars, so they get Love in Song and Letting Go written down. Ring, Wings record a jingle for Mother's Pride Bread. That's an interesting. That's I, that. That is. How did that happen? I I I have no idea. I came across this recently. We're big fans of the uh, Take It Away. Um, podcast and I, I was listening to an, uh, an episode and they played a little clip of that and they they find it hilarious it's a peculiar sort of little synth driven things and they were saying like which mother's pride bread executive decided this would be a good idea to get paul mccartney <laughs> to uh to, to, to write it he's really yeah he's he's doing an awful lot of stuff but it's interesting that that you know we've talked a lot on, on, on when we've looked at 1974 it's a very much a north american type thing uh, and you know george ringo and john are really focused on north america paul still has this very peculiar britishness to wings where they're doing mother's pride jingles they're doing those theme from crossroads they're recording lunchbox odd socks and zoo gang and all these kind of odd little kind of quirky things and uh yeah they, 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 it's a, it's a different kind of experience that Paul is but Paul is very much a UK Anglophile kind of experience absolutely and and I think this is again the shift across the year is that focus that that, Le that Lennon uh, Ringo they're having success in America George is coming to grief in America I think by the end of this period um, the UK has ceased to be interested in the Beatles, um, you know, as an entity or, yeah. There's still this draw, though, of, you know, will they get back together? And Ringo says in November, how can we get back together if George won't play with Paul? But then there's the onstage appearance uh, at the end of November that people didn't think would happen. And of course, I'm talking about Paul and Linda joining Rod Stewart in the faces. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was the big, uh, the big. Uh, well, that's the only big thing that the happened. The only big thing that happened in November. Um, no, have, but, you, have you seen that clip? Uh, no, I haven't actually. I think there's a there's a clip on YouTube, I think I've, I've seen where it's quite clear that everyone is uh, refreshed. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. But. but the main thing is on the 28th of November is that um, 
John Lennon makes good on his bet with Elton John to appear on stage. And it's Thanksgiving in the US. And, you know, we've probably all heard the recording of it now. It, it's, it's, it's circulated on Elton reissues and, and uh, you know, it was all on John's 1990 box set Lennon. And um, it's interesting that four days beforehand, there was a rehearsal session. I kind of thought that this was purely ad hoc, but there was a rehearsal. Yeah. Oh, there was a, yeah, there were rehearsals and um, I had never heard these rehearsals and I thought, you know, are these available? But I went looking and actually there, there is a version of, I saw her standing there that you can hear on YouTube. Um, you know, it's very, very faithful to what you hear on, on, on stage. Um, well, it's also something that, uh, you know, I remember when you first hear the recording and, you know, uh, Elton John introduces John Lennon, man, the sound of that crowd, it really... Yeah, they, go, they, they go nuts. They go nuts. And really, you compare that to the sound of the crowd that George was um, generating at the same time. You know, John just rocks up and, you know, he does throw in a great performance. You know, they, they, those three songs sound fantastic. He, he does. And he's... He, yeah, but he, you know, he's he's got a number one single. Um, you know, the other thing that I discovered, which I, again, I'd never seen before, but Elton John has a YouTube channel. There, there is a very short, maybe 20, 25 second clip. Yeah, there is footage of the night. There, uh, and that's 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 it, that little clip. Yeah. It, you know, um, I'd never seen that before. very exciting. It's yes. really exciting. It really just that 20 seconds absolutely captures uh, the sort of hysteria of, of what's, what's about to happen, you know? And it's, uh, you know, uh, there is an Elton connection. Elton, uh, you know, becomes the godfather to Sean Lennon in 75 and says that, you know, he kept in touch with uh, John up until the end, met him up in September 1980 after he played Central Park. And uh, but this wasn't Lennon's last performance. There's one performance, maybe when we get around to doing 1975. But he does do a TV performance in 75. He, he, he does. You've seen that? Yeah, that's wild. It's, it's, a, a, it's a new a, great. It's a weird. Uh, Have you watched the whole thing, the whole show? No, 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 I haven't. Oh, watch the whole show. It's hosted by Dave Allen, the uh, Irish comedian, and it's uh, it's to, so Lennon's, Lennon, Lennon Lennon performs. Uh, two songs were televised, did three songs on the night. He's wearing this garish leather suit and it's a really fascinating performance and it's a salute to Lou Grade who owned Northern uh, and ATV Publishing and, you know, it's part contractual obligation but John really is kind of giving the middle finger to to what's happening here and if you watch his performance on its own it's very strange if you watch the entire hour long show and John Lennon appears in the middle of it it's even more strange <laughs> is it, it is makes it, is it sort of show busy it's totally then. show busy it's from the ballroom of some place in yeah, New York City yeah 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 and uh, every, you know all the great and the good are there all these famous people are in the audience and um yeah, Lennon just does his thing and it's really, it's really uncomfortable looking, <laughs> you know. Um, but while John is raising the roof with Elton John in Madison Square Garden and while George is sauntering around uh, the US making people sad, apparently this is the time when Paul says, I'm announcing a North American tour. That uh, now These gigs don't, event, don't happen until 1976, but this is when Wings Over America first it's, gets it's, Yeah, but he couldn't, he couldn't, just have let George finish his tour, get to, <laughs> you know, limp to the end of the tour. He has said, so on the 30th of November, Paul, in the middle, uh, you know, coming up to the last gigs of joy, he goes, hey, I, I'll be there. Don't worry. Don't worry. You know, if you you want to hear some Beatle magic, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. 
but come on, you listen to Wings Over America and he's, man, those, that audience are getting what they want, you know, when you see, when you see the film Absolutely. Well. And I mean, man, man, yeah, as you say, man, those overdubs <laughs> are just... You can uh, feel how live they are. <laughs> um, but George is still on the road. Uh, we're now into December 74 and the first, he's still slogging around. The first single from Dark Horse in the UK is actually not Dark Horse, it's Ding Dong, which gets to number 38. It's this odd Christmassy song, which has a video made for it. And Stephen, I think it's awful. Yes, uh, it's not great. It's not great. <laughs> it's not the best thing he ever did. But he seemed to have been convinced uh, that it, in, in the manner of, you know, Slade, uh, he, he could come up with a slightly <laughs> glam sounding Christmas uh, staple. Uh, what I would say is, you know, it's better, obviously, than Wonderful Christmas Time. But uh, oh, man, let's not. And let's uh, not certainly the video. Is, the video is interesting. The video is very George. You know, there's people dressing up in odd costumes. That there's George in a series of Beatle costumes, uh, and and the, the you know the lyric is uh, you know ring out the old ring in the new. And I mean it's it's all ties into this notion of getting rid of the Beatles, walking away from the Beatles. There's 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 a logic. The the, the video is is really worth seeing. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's interesting. He wears the Sergeant Pepper costume, which he also wears again in When We Was Fab. Um, yes, yes. In, uh, so he, he's, he's, he's prone to putting on that costume now and then. Um, but uh, Dark Horse comes out in, uh, as we said, in the 9th of December. And it's interesting, you kind of start looking at those US charts at the end of 74. And Junior's Farm comes out in November. That starts to go up the charts. It appears on the charts while whatever gets you through the night is up at number one. That eventually goes top 10. Uh, and if you, you kind of start to look at the last chart of, uh, of 1974, you know, Goodnight Vienna is at 10 in the charts. Walls and Bridges is at 29. Dark Horse enters the charts at 58 at the end of 74 and Band on the Run is on its way out at 183. But, you know, you look at the singles, you know, Paul has been essentially on the singles chart for the entire year. And maybe Paul has been the dark horse ho-ho in 1974 by just working... (laughs) <laughs> by working the catalog. I see what, I see what yeah. you did. You, 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 you had that I, written I down have, at the very yes. start of episode, part one of this episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, no, I think, I think you know, you're, I think you're right. I mean, uh, the, 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 the sort of the, con, the, the, the initial premise of this episode was the shift in the whole sort of dynamic between the four of them. Um, that, that, you know, uh, George and Ringo come into that year absolutely riding uh, the the crest of a wave in terms of commercial success, and George in particular with critical success. Paul is struggling to establish a kind of solo identity. John is slightly marginalised, and by the end of the year, you're absolutely right. Paul is. But there's one or two tricks that 1974 still has up its sleeve. So George finishes his tour in Madison Square Garden in New York City. And there are grand plans in New York City for basically Beatles to attend George's gig. And yes, there's also the little matter of signing some dissolution papers as well. Yes, yes. So uh, it, it, what, what has happened is that John has gone to one of uh, George's gigs um, and rather uncharitably uh, remarks on the fact that he was glad he didn't have to sit through the Ravi Shankar uh, <laughs> section because Ravi has taken ill. Um, but he uh, agrees to come on stage with George at Madison Square Gardens in New York. And he he sort of 
gives an interview in which he refers to this, the sort of tantalizing the prospect that he's going to appear on stage uh, with with George. And, and people will have had in mind his appearance with Elton John, you know, just a few weeks uh, before. Yeah. Same venue, one one month earlier. You know, there's, there's form, you know, why shouldn't John just, just yeah. appear, you know? And he just... I think he does two day two days in Madison Square Garden, the nineteenth and twentieth of December, nineteen seventy four, and uh, they, they're not sellouts. They're not sellouts. They're not sellouts. Uh, but there's a lot going on on that particular day. Hmm. Um, so you know, for those people who like Saturday Night Live, um, there may well, be some people out there who like I Saturday do like Night Saturday Night Live. But the, the, but this is interesting because the Saturday Night Live doesn't exist in December seventy four. But he's recorded. A version of Dark Horse for some kind of prototype or pilot or something. He's yeah, I think with. this is this seems to be a pilot, and he comes in and records a live version of Dark Horse. I've never seen this. Mm. Uh, I've never seen this clip. Um, I assume we're right at the end of the tour. I assume his voice is not in good shape, um, but that's something I'd like to see. Yeah, and the Beatles then agree at this nineteenth of December date that they're going to meet in the Plaza Hotel in Manhattan, and the Plaza Hotel is famously where they were when they first arrived. In 1964. So we start this episode by saying, look, it's 1964 to 1974, 10 years of the Beatles, and they're back at the Plaza Hotel. And the arrangement is that they're going to sign the papers to dissolve the group. And again, this is footage that appears in the Living in the Material World documentary that I'd never seen before. And well, famously, John doesn't show, isn't yeah. that right? So, so, so the way this has been set up is Ringo has already signed uh, the documents in, in London. Uh, I think the reason he can't come to New York is Alan Klein is trying to serve him with uh, a lawsuit. So he, he's sort of lying low. He's already signed all the papers, but he's on the phone, supposedly. Yeah. Um, and in the Living in the Material World documentary, you can see George signing these reams and reams of paper and saying, you know, this is another document. I've, I haven't read it. I don't know what it is. And in the background, you can see Paul yeah, uh, genuinely sort of e emotional about what's happening. George is being quite blasé about it. Um, and one of the reasons, as you say, is that John at the last minute doesn't show. Yeah. And instead, he gets one of the um, Walls and Bridges advertising uh, props and sends that along, uh, that being a balloon saying, listen to this balloon. <laughs> it's yeah it's it's uh it's really strange you see that footage in the documentary and uh i didn't know there was any footage of 1974 george and 1974 paul hanging out paul looks bereaved paul looks very very sad he does and he does they're signing all yeah. these papers to dissolve the group and um you know, this is kind of what leads to Harrison and Lennon having a row Lennon then doesn't turn up to perform in madison square garden yeah yeah, I mean, Harrison, Harrison phones him, tells him not to bother coming and says, you know, I started the tour without you. I'll finish it without you. Um, and there's a massive row uh, that, that, you know, appears to be at this point uh, completely fractures that relationship between uh, Lennon and Harrison. What happens next? There seems to be some debate about. Um, I, I've heard some sources say that Paul goes uh, to the uh, East 52nd Street apartment that John is sharing with May Pang to discuss the sticking point, which is tax. Um, uh, in her book, May Pang says Paul phoned. Um, what she then says is uh, John suddenly decides he wants to see Lee Eastman. 
and they go to see Lee Eastman. And I think this is the next day they go to see Lee Eastman. Uh, Julian Lennon, who's there with John, goes to the Yeah, he goes Harrison. to both nights at the Harrison. He, and he, he goes to both nights. Paul and Linda go to the first yeah. night on the 19th in disguise. Have you seen have, the photographs yes, of them in funny. disguise? <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, this massive Afro wig that, you know, it's crazy. I mean, there's pictures out there. It's just ludicrous. But supposedly the next day, John, May Pang, and Neil Aspinall go to visit Lee Eastman. And Lee Eastman is saying, you've got to sign this. You've got to sign this. Your relationship with George Harrison is over if you don't sign this. The only way you can repair this, the phone rings. It's Julian on the phone to speak to, speak to his father. John tells May to take the call, and she comes back in and says, Julian is on the phone. He has a message for you from George. He forgives you. And this completely undercuts then Lee Eastman, you know, this is the only way, this is the only way to do this. But he says, my father forgives you and says, come to the, come to the party, come to the after show party. And that's on the 20th. So that, that, that. But we also have documentation of then there's this thing that popped up on YouTube a few years ago of George and John doing a radio interview together. Yes. yes. And that's done on the 20th of December, 74. Yeah. So this is this is after the second Harrison gig. Uh, John gets the invite, you know, come to the, I think it's called the Hippopotamus Club. I don't know where yeah. that is. I'm sure there's people out there. Don't look for it. It's not there anymore. Um, uh, so he goes to the after party uh, uh, and, and then goes to visit George in his hotel. George is giving an interview. Uh, on a radio interview, and then partway through the interview, suddenly John Lennon appears, um, which is, again, just bizarre that these things could happen. They've had this insane 48 hours, and, you know, they're just hanging out, and they start talking about David Bowie. Bowie, it's Bowie, it's Bowie. I don't like him. I think he looks like George obviously doesn't like David Bowie. And, you're just, you're um, just, you like to get George. <laughs> so unlike you. Um, but it's, it's, it's really... It's, it's an odd little time capsule because you think, oh, uh, how it's strange how when it's just them, they have a version of themselves. But when the, the apparatus of the Beatles and the, the, the legality and the tax and the finances, it, it just becomes a, an absolute disaster. Yes. So within 24 hours, we've gone from this blazing ride between, between George and John, which is sort of supposedly sundered their relationship, to 24 hours later, George is saying, no, no, I forgive you come to the party and they're being interviewed on a radio show together. So it, it's... But we don't really know George and John to ever be together again, particularly. No, I, I'm not aware. There is that uh, uh, will be touched on in the 1980 episode. There's this rumor, uh, this myth uh, is in the Keith Badman book that uh, George... Uh, was in LA at a Monty Python show at the Hollywood Bowl and John and Yoko flew out for that show and uh, that, that they did meet at that point, um, which would be nice to think that that happened. Um, I think Olivia would know she was supposedly there or perhaps Eric Idle, if we can get Eric on the on the show. He's not coming on the show. Um, and then the last week of, you know, one week afterwards on the 29th of December, that is when John finally signs the dissolution papers for the band. And he does that in Disneyland. Yes, there's something oddly fitting about 
Disneyland being the uh, so he's there with he's there for Christmas with uh, with Julian and and, and May Pang. The lawyer arrives with the contract. I, I would like to know whether it was all of the papers that you see in the documentary was like literally covered an entire board table. Um, I'm sure it was just signature pages. That's the way lawyers do these things. Um, just a, yeah, a little post-it note. Yeah, just post-it sign, note sign, sign here, sign here. But this is captured in Instamatic Karma again by May Pang, isn't it? It, it is. And if it, it, you know, you should buy this book for no other reason than than the fact that John according to May Pang, recognized the, the sort of the, the, the momentous uh, import of what was about to happen and asked her to take a photograph as he signed it and uh, as he signed it and the shutter sort of clicks between the H and the N of John as he's signing it. So we, we have a photograph of the precise moment uh, that John, who started the group, yes, is the last to sign. Yeah. And again, you know, he knew that that was the last signature and that was it and that's what she says she says when he sat down to sign he knew that this was it his was the last signature as he had started the group he was the one to end it and then the 9th of january 75 the high court formally dissolves the beatles so this notion that had been bubbling around for 1974 and back into 1973 will they won't they can they you know should they part of this notion was that, well, once they get everything out of the way, they're free to get back together again. But it turned out the opposite was true, that they were never going to be as busy or as intertwined or as overlapping as they were in that year of 74. And it it just slowly drifts off into space from there here on in. Yes. I mean, it's odd that that the, 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 the sort of the legal entanglement that they all wanted to be free of so that they could then come back together or the potential was there was actually what was holding them together through, through, through that sort of four period. That's the, that's the only reason that they had to talk to each other. Absolutely. It was, it was, it was a combined strength of, of all that paperwork. Well, look, that's 1974. What a year. All those records, all that activity, tours, uh, all human life is there. Um, it's quite an extraordinary tale. It is. I I, I think it's a pivotal year, um, and I th- I think there's a book there just on 1974, just on that one year. There is so much happens, and it's just the whole uh, dynamic between those four people yeah. shifts shifts, and 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 just the the Beatle years are sort of carrying on. There's a forward momentum carrying them forward through the early 70s, 73, 74, and then everything shifts at that point. Quite amazing. Well, what do you think, folks? You can let us know. Uh, we are on Twitter at Beatles Pod. You can talk to us on Facebook. Uh, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group is there. It's in our Twitter handle if you want to click through the links to that and Stephen will uh, grant you access. Um, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe already. And if you feel like leaving a nice review wherever you get your podcasts, it's always appreciated. Um, but uh, until next time, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Nothing Is Real is powered by Acast. Thanks, everybody.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.